1: we
2: well, hey everybody, welcome to episode 283 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell, and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lippas Jr. in Seattle, Washington.
3: How's it going?
2: I'm also joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. I just realized I'm pointing to, to my left and you guys are actually to my right, but oh well, whatever. Hmm. So You're point south? You uh, I don't know. I just like, kind of imagine you guys were are off to the right, and, but you're actually off to the left. Oh, so you're up. facing north then. I am facing north at uh, the moment. Yeah, that's true. Which way you're, you're facing, let me think here, if I remember correctly, you're facing the ocean, Mark? Me?
4: Okay. I uh, have to think about that for a second. But no, I'm actually facing east right now. Are you sitting at the end of your table? Like No, I'm sitting at my um, coffee table on the uh, couch. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you were sitting at your dining room table. Yeah, sometimes I sit was. there, but today I'm
2: not. Ah, all right. And I have no idea where I'd be sitting because I've never seen his place.
3: Yeah, I pulled out the compass because I figured you would ask. I am, <laughs> I am facing 229 degrees southwest. Well, there you go, southwest. You're looking over that way. Okay, gotcha. All
2: right. Okay. Well, we got some fact check from last week. Uh, I was talking about uh, the size, the v- physical height of the um the new Mac Pro rack mount unit. Um, turns out it is actually eight 8.67 inches or 22.02 centimeters for those of you in the other side of the world, uh, or five U's. Now a U. U is sort of a standard rack rack mount unit, and like the the X serves were one one U high. It's roughly about an, an inch and a quarter, I guess. Um, and uh, well, that's be next week's fact check. But but my point was that so I looked up some some. I just ran, ran, went to a random site today to find out what the colocation c- costs are per month for that would be. So a single U would cost roughly thirty five dollars a month. A four U, which is a standard s- server height, would be eighty dollars a month. And a, to rent a full rack would be forty two U high is around $500 a month and that's a lot cheaper than when I was I used to co-locate my serves back in the day when I was actually hosting websites and stuff, uh, physically doing it myself I mean um, so the interesting thing is the Mac Pro rack mount is actually five use high so it's going to cost you you know, if that's sort of my point was last week work was that it's going to cost somebody you know, $100 a month to host this thing somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So and like a lot, a lot of people like if they have a real business going they don't just have one single server, they might have a couple they'd have like, you know, super redundancy and things like that. And uh, they might actually, you know, in, in that case, they might, bo- might as well just get a full rack, right? <laughs> Put yeah. that
4: in there. I, yeah. I don't know that too many people will be using these in a in in a server type of role, right? I mean, an external server type of role. Because, I mean, I, I could see it. Yeah, I could see them rack mounting for internal use, but to get yeah. them in a, you know, reasonable, get them off the desk. Like
2: but render farm or something like that, yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah. But, but yeah. Well, I guess, I, I, I suppose they could have a render farm somewhere and that could be remote, yeah. I suppose. They wouldn't be using them necessarily for things like um, you know training machine learning models because they're kind of expensive for that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, even though there's a lot of power, but you know you, what you're really getting with this thing is all of the you know the super powerful like graphics rendering engine. Yeah, I would think stuff.
2: video production and, yeah. and editing and maybe sound editing might be something you would do. You need this yeah. kind of horsepower. And, for and so
4: yeah, exactly. So so do people who do that kind of stuff? Do they usually keep these things remotely or do they keep them on site? That I don't know.
2: I don't know, but there are entire entire far- like there was a place in Toronto and there's places all throughout the States that just do Mac mini co-locating. So you, you'd buy you'd buy or rent a mini or you you'd buy a mini from them and they yeah. put it on the rack and, and they give you remote access to it. So you never actually had, like when I, my servers were being co-loaded, located about 50 miles away from here from me right now, I very rarely went and physically visited them. If I ever had yeah. calls, talk support and say, can you go push the power button on the front? To oh yeah, for sure. For sure. No, and
4: those are yeah. Yeah, less, less high power. I won't call them low powered, but relatively no. low powered machines that are yeah. parallel for, for web servers and things like that where you don't yeah, really yeah, need yeah. a super large amount of,
2: of oh, like, like it could also be for like Jenkins running Jenkins right, exactly. like for build yeah, servers exactly, exactly.
4: Yeah. yeah yeah yeah. but you're not gonna you're not gonna use a Mac Pro, a new Mac Pro for that because you're just no. throwing away dollars doing
2: that well no not unless you not unless you had like a large large group and you wanted to break like you might break the, the XServe down into and have um, virtual machines running on it yeah. and use them as virtual uh, virtual build machines right which, which case you'd have more than one running on a single machine that way you'd right. You know utilize the disk space and the and the horsepower yeah. and the speed and stuff right? yeah
4: I, I still don't know that it, that one of these would be cost effective because they're so expensive no I knows? mean yeah uh, who knows again
2: again why again yeah I mean like there's a lot of a lot of question marks as to why why we even need a Mac pro like the you know it's like the thing is that Apple tried to get into the server market back in the in the, the 90s right and or they all the way along and we'll talk about that in a minute too because they've been trying to do server stuff since since the get-go since Macs, even before Macs came out right um, but but yeah, they never really were able to to you know unhinge the Windows servers of the world, the Unix, the Suns, you know, Sun Microsystems servers of the world. Right. Um, SGI was the big guys in graphics, and and Dell has kind of kicked everybody's ass in terms of like you know inexpensive
4: servers. Right. right. Well, for sure, uh, people I mean, like Disney or Pixar or places like that who are doing a lot of CGI. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're using these, but but I would I would guess those guys are just have a big giant server room in house. I would think.
2: Well, this is why the 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 trash can Mac Pro was sort of. like... Like almost like it's going to be a road apple in a few years because it, from from its expandability, practical yeah. like you can't rack mount it. There's a lot of reasons why you know other than you need to have a fast computer on your desk. Right, um, it's kind of a limited product product in that way, right? Yep. Like, I think that's why people were happy to see the end of it, right? Yep. Anyway, kind of moving on to the next thing was the other thing I had for follow up is I mentioned the Macintosh Office last week, um, and I forget what the reference was, but so I, I went and checked it out because I wanted to find out what that was, and it turned out that um, and this is an interesting story because because the Apple tried originally to get into the business world with, obviously with the Lisa, which was the first, you know, Mac, uh, or it was, they even made called the Mac XL after they rebranded it, after the Mac success. And they also had the laser printer, which ran PostScript, of course, right? So when they had, so they, they came up with this, this networking called Apple Link, I think it was. Um, and they would, I should, probably should open the article and look at it because it told me what it was. Anyway, um, so they, they tried to, they had this way of networking computers together. And uh, what's interesting about this uh, um, yeah, it was called AppleNet. Um, they could connect a Mac, and, and they, they might even have a Mac as a file server kind of thing, and then a printer, and they wanted to get into this whole business business of, uh, of you know, office stuff. But um, And, you know, and eventually it went to like a thing called PhoneNet, which was really inexpensive using coaxial phone cables. So when I got into networking computers, like I had, we had two Macs in, in the original art department I worked in, and we wanted to connect them together so we could do some file sharing. There was a product called Tops, right, which was one of the first sort of third-party things that came along. One was from. Um, one was like what would be eventually become Sun Microsystems created an, like an Apple Talk based file sharing. Um, this is under System 6, of course, right? And so we could do peer-to-peer file sharing and that kind of stuff and, um, and also laser printing to this. We would share the same laser printer. But what happened was, you know, it, it didn't sort of uh, take off for Apple in terms of business. It took off for Apple in terms of desktop publishing, right? Because now that they can network and connect, you know, artists together with printers, that's where the whole desktop publishing boom came out of. Of, I came out of this whole effort of what we call, I'm doing air quotes, the Macintosh Office. And it was a Lemmings commercial we talked about last week, which was, which was a commercial promoting the Macintosh Office, uh, which was kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, that goes, I've forgotten about TOPS. I still have my, my floppies with my TOPS software on it. And I have a couple of phone net connectors around here somewhere and a few laser printers, of course, hanging around. But yeah, that was uh, my story about the uh, Macintosh Office. And yeah, nothing else I can say about that. All righty. Um, AskMTJC. Do we have any ask AskMTJC besides my rant here, Jaime?
3: yeah you have a, a link that you had tagged okay what it
2: oh yeah this is uh, this is relating to we talked about hypercard many times on the show. I think um I think it was my probably the first thing I ever did for programming uh, was this amazing program um by Bill Atkinson called Hypercard. and do you remember the game Myst, Mark? yep, so Myst was actually written in Hypercard. oh okay. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but yeah, there's a video here Clint, I, I linked that with uh, AskMTJC jC because I know we talked about Myst and we've talked about hypercard in the past um and the other thing was was my <laughs> I don't know. I'm shaking my head because, and this is my okay boomer moment, because um, I've been talking about Well Simple about how wonderful it is to have this sort of self, you know, automatic, you know, uh, um, retirement savings program, automatic trading, and they now got this. They're coming out with this bank system, and you can have, you know, a cash account with a with a debit card or a Visa card with with no fees and all that kind of stuff, all this promise of wonderful new stuff. And yet, their customer service, I gotta say, I'm sorry, they didn't get in touch me with me today after I ranted on on Twitter. But like, why did I have to go to Twitter to try and get customer service? I called them. They never answered the phone like three, four days in a row. I tried emailing them. No response. It wasn't until I went to the socials and kind of, you know, put it out there that, that uh, they're not doing a great job at uh, customer service that they actually reached out to me. So, yeah, I just it's just, like I said, the OK Boomer moment. Like, this is not what <laughs> those of us who've been around for a while call customer service. Just because you make a great product and you put it out there, you can't support your customers. Get off the porch. Anyway, it's my rant. No comments?
3: <laughs> I I have no experience with the product and i i can definitely understand some of the, the concerns there it's it's kind of a weird world when it comes to Binance. i don't know exactly what uh you know is going on in the canadian financial world but it's it's well, pretty they're trying nutty. to be
2: international they're also serving up their us i had to I have to fill out a w8in form or whatever you call those a bn form or whatever it is for taxes right
3: yeah um, it, it gets really weird and nutty when we're in a internet connected world where there isn't like a real clear like distribution like goods physically passed over some border yeah. um, and, and dealing with the changing you know, laws and technology. And so yeah. I, I kind of yeah. think that people will end up having a lot of these kinds of issues because I think we will have uh, many, many bank accounts or, or financial accounts. And there really isn't, as far as I've seen, any sort of like silver bullet to tie that all together yeah, and make but, it but seamless. Right? It's
2: not so much about finance. I'm talking about like putting a product out in the world, right? That's like virtual or, or you know, use your phone to connect to it or whatever. Whatever. Um, at the end of the day, you got to back up with some sort, some kind of support, right? I mean, like you can even go back to Marco Arment talking like four or five years ago, when, when we talked about on the show that he was sort of saying that customer support isn't worth the effort, right? Like, like the, sorry, I shouldn't say that. What I mean is he was saying that the amount of money that we make on the App Store for selling our apps for like next to nothing, and then having to support them doesn't 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 make sense. Like it's it's not scalable, right? Like it's it takes more effort to support a product than it is than it does to write it, and if we're not getting paid for that, it, it was t- it's t- to sort of justify staying in business in this. But, you know, in this world where we have like Ubers and, you know, Ritual and all these, you know, push for pizza uh, type services out there, it's all great to try and disrupt the disrupt the current brick and mortar businesses. But at the end of the day, you got to be able to support your customers too, right? Because not everything can be solved with a web form.
3: Yeah. And I think that's, that's where you're going to see a mixture where um, when people's situations are relatively straightforward, um, the scalability of not really having to have support and like, yeah, we can have millions of customers because nothing, you know, really goes wrong. Or the, the times when things do go wrong, eh, it's not that huge a hassle, right? It's when it's uh, either a, a big moment of need, or like, I don't know, you were trying to, to get a down payment for a house in time to, you know, to seal yeah, exactly. the deal. Like, yep. you don't want that to ever go wrong, right? And right, exactly. And so, I think some of these these app and services models may or may not fit some of those. And that's where I think it won't be a sort of one-size-fits-all. It'll definitely be a half of multiple different apps and services that do this sort of thing and mix and match based on your needs. That doesn't excuse the the sort of general notion you're talking about of like, hey, support your customers. I'm like, yeah, that would be good. And if companies aren't, you can vote with your wallet and, and move elsewhere that is taking care of their customers.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, like I like the promise of this tool and this, this service, but like it's hard for me to move away from traditional stuff where, you know, I could walk into a branch and I can, you know, can ask to speak to the manager kind of thing. Whereas, you know, here, who do I? I've got like Megan on, on Twitter that I can converse with, you know, kind of thing. Um, That's not fair to her, right? But, you know, there's no other way to to, to get a hold of anybody, it seems, right? Um, it's interesting that you bring up that too, that, the, the point you made about making a mortgage payment. Because one of the things, that, I went to a hackathon on on um, Delta Hacks, and this is the sixth iteration of it in Hamilton this weekend. I was mentoring um, some developers and I met up with um, uh, a company called the, um, Ample Labs. We talked, to, I think I made I've talked about them before but they're um, they're doing an app for they have an API a chat bot for the homeless people in Toronto and and you know they've been talking to people in LA and Boston and places like that and the idea behind this is you can actually use the app or you can use a chat you can use their chatbot API to build an app for yourself but you can also uh, for the homeless people they can go in there and say look I need to find a place to sleep I need to find some food I need to find some clothes right and the chat bot will say what are you looking for and you can sort of tell it what you're doing and the statistic that behind this is that not 90% of the people who are homeless have a smartphone. And a lot of cases, um, when, how people become, and it's, you know, it's a shame and a stigma and they don't like to ask their friends for help because, you know, they're couch surfing or whatever. There's a whole hidden uh, network of homeless people out there, you know, and it's simple things like they missed a rent payment and they got evicted, right? They may have a job, they may be a developer, they may be working, you know, in a legitimate job and they, you know, they're paying their, their, their phone bill and stuff like that, but because something went wrong and they missed a, missed a payment, they're out on the street, as it were, and I'm doing our quotes again because they're obviously sur- surfing on their cou- friend's couch whatever, but but it's an interesting thing. Like Most people don't realize that homeless people aren't just the guys you know, um, hanging out on the street with a Tim Hortons cup in front of them, right? So I'll put a link to the show notes for Chalmers, which is their chatbot um, that these guys have put together. Yeah, this is a,
3: anyway. to put a button on it, um, this kind of dovetails with the discussion we had an episode or two ago about um, the Generation Z folks and their uh, uptake yeah. of mobile usage, smartphones usage and i kind of suspect we will see an even greater march towards cashless where even people who um are disadvantaged and end up homeless will probably have smartphones and i think it'll look a lot like um homeless folks in china who since wechat is everything over there they will have you know wechat qr codes available for people instead of like a you know a a change cup it's like you know scan my code and give me money
2: well it's interesting and maybe we'll take this off the show uh, like offside for a minute but one of the things in, in Africa, they have a thing called M-Pesa and they use cell phones to pay each other, right? They went right from, from no internet to, to cell phone technologies and, and they're paying, it's like microfinancing kind of stuff. They're paying like for cab fares and groceries and stuff with these, you know, somebody gives you a ride in a cab, you pay them through your cell phone kind of thing, right? And, and it's just a really low level financing thing. But here's an idea that I had, and like your idea about the QR code. Is that something you've seen in the, in the field or heard about with the WeChat money you said?
3: Uh, I've not seen it myself because that, that sort of payment method, doesn't really work over here from my understanding i think you yeah. you'd need to have um i don't know i assume residency uh, of some sort in in china to get the bank accounts for alipay and we pay yeah
2: so, well let me ask you something so do you guys carry cash much cash these days still you pay for things with cash
4: occasionally but not that much
2: yeah now you got that cool apple card right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah
3: so infrequently that uh, right before um a business trip where i was like all right you know i always like to have cash in my wallet just in case you know as a backup you know, right just in wrong. case, yeah. But some places still
4: don't take Apple Pay. Yeah. It's inconvenient to use a credit card sometimes.
3: Yeah, and I, I looked and I said, oh, I have no idea how much money is in my wallet. And then I looked and I said, hmm, this is twenty three dollars. This is not enough. That's not enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need to either go to an ATM or go to like a grocery store, buy some groceries, and then get cash back to get yeah. the cash back.
2: Well, it's interesting you say that because I I usually carry around, I try to carry around twenty to forty dollars of you know in bills, and I like I use a Presto card, which is like a transit card and. And, and um, you know it's, it automatically fills with, with uh, credits every, every when, it, when the balance gets to a certain level. And I got to remember to carry at least three or four dollars worth of coins on me because if I ever lose my Presto card, I'm not getting home. You know what I mean? Because mm. um, we don't have like in, I think in New York you can you can tap with your smartphone now, right, to get onto a subway. But um,
4: you can't just buy a token somewhere with a credit card.
2: Well, you could. Um, yeah, there are places around to get it, but it, it's so convenient to use a Presto card, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like. like yeah. You can get onto you can get onto the streetcar. There is a machine there where you can pop coins and pay for your fare, right? And if you don't pay your fare, there there are there were transit cops that go around and they look they scan your your Presto card or they look at your transfer or whatever it is you have in your, or your physical ticket. Um, If you don't pay, it's like four hundred fifty dollars or some, cra- and you have to stand there like for half an hour while they write you up, kind of thing, right? Mm. So it's not a convenient thing to to not pay, right? Or jump to jump to turnstile or whatever. But um, yeah, it's kind of like like you you kind of got to you got to keep that little bit of float on you, right? Like in terms of bills and, and coins, right? But uh, and for some reason, I don't know. I, like I said, I always carry around, you know, a few few bucks worth of change in my pocket. I, the last couple of weeks, I've been like, I don't know what happened to change. It didn't make it from one, one pair of jeans to another kind of thing, right? So, um, so I had to ask Carol for like some coins the other day, right? To, to make sure I had uh, my backup plan taken care of, right? Yeah. I mean, I suppose, uh, yeah, like you can't, I guess we do have a lot of places, like if you go to buy something in a store, you can ask them to add cash back onto the, onto the thing and they'll, the, the machine will... Shoot you some money, right? You guys have that sort of system in your place.
4: Wait, you actually States? talk to a person at a store these days? <laughs> it's very rarely. It's but, usually, but, but even, uh, even... self checkout. at well, the supermarket at least. Yeah,
2: but even at self checkouts you can get cash, right? Like they oh, all have I don't money think in. You can't
4: ours. Well, not yeah. the one I go to, at least.
2: Well, like, like if I go to a hardware store or something, and I buy like a hundred bucks of hardware. They'll say to me, or even grocery stores, they'll say, "Do you want cash back?" Right? Because you might need, you know, bills or something. You can get cash out. Yeah, the they used anyway.
4: to do that at supermarkets here, but haven't heard that in a long time.
2: Yeah, well, they still have here and, and, yep. and you know at the walmarts and whatever yep. around, but uh, but yeah but like my point is like yeah we're we're paying for everything with our with our people are still amazed when i pay with my watch so i which is funny i paid for something the other day and the woman went oh wow you did that with your watch or i paid for a beer at a bar right mm. and, and she's like and this is like a bar in the financial area of toronto in the financial district and she hadn't seen anybody pay with their watch right which is funny
3: yeah what you should do the next time is it's be like watch as i hack your payment system yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't need to pay for this i'm a hacker and then oh what while. he went through I was like yeah That'll go I'm just right. that watch good I wave,
2: hey? wave my magic trick or I'll I'll, I'll I'll do the Jedi mind trick thing with my hand and wave over top of your payment device and it'll automatically go through <laughs> like you you, you you know you emphatically put your watch down on top of it and you kind of hold your wrist there while it makes contact but you could you could fake him out with a
3: with a Jedi Jedi hand gesture right and,
4: yeah then suddenly you go from someone who's really cool to someone who's a complete nerd <laughs> yeah yeah that's true I think the
3: more the more subtle the more subtle way is to go the remember for terminator 2 um eddie furlong as john Connor. remember when he and his buddy were hacking into the atm machines and they say easy money just say that because it doesn't necessarily date you if they don't know the reference and if they do know the (laughs) reference you can have a knowing wink and a nod yeah 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 Yeah, i didn't even remember that and i've seen that movie several
2: times all right um let's move on so how you got some follow-up for us
3: yeah the it's an end of an era well coming up soon as the end of an era this is a follow-up to the fact that we've talked about uh adobe flash which uh surprisingly has, has still been around um adobe wasn't going to give up on uh you know support until the end of this year in 2020 uh, mm-hmm. but the safari technology preview specifically number 99 uh finally completely uh removes flash capability it has been there but disabled by default for a very very long time but soon soon you will no longer be able to run flash and
2: so you, you mean they removing the ability to, to add the flash plugin to safari is that what you're going
3: that's with? my understanding when i when i read this article so all of those uh those corporate uh you know hr training sort of programs will eventually have to be changed into something else for those handful that still use adobe flash
2: so i wonder does chrome still support flash without a plugin
3: i don't know i know it's been disabled by default for a very long time oh, in, in chrome as well it's similar but i don't know if it's actually been removed or not hmm Interesting.
2: Yeah. End of yeah, an era. Without, yeah. End of an era there. Does anybody, I mean, I very rarely use Flash these days, right? So.
3: That's why I brought up the, you know, giant corporation security training. Um, right. Those right. are the only ones I can think of that are, you know, still out there and use that. Uh, thankfully, the the advent of uh, the iPhone's popularity pretty much killed the um, Adobe Flash restaurant menus and other sorts of right. things. You, you really haven't seen that for a long time. Hmm.
2: Good riddance. Um, this next piece was. Uh, was about the Apple Car, which we've talked about several times before. Um, it started out with a tweet, and uh, if you click on the tweet that I've got there first, before you look at the article uh, that I've linked, um, somebody's dressed up a Porsche with the Apple rainbow stripes, and it says Apple Computer Inc. across the bottom of it. Um, this is a reproduction of uh, the car that's in the article from Business Insider called, There's an Apple Car for Sale, but it's not the one that you think. And it's basically an Apple a racing Porsche that was used in a racetrack. Um, and I guess Apple was a sponsor at one point, and uh, yeah. So this car's come out for this is this is an article from 2016. Yeah, so it's probably already been sold. But yeah, it was just the article. The car in the article was a, is a 36 year old Porsche that even Paul Newman drove at one point. Um, for those of you maybe maybe your friends at uh, at work there, Mark, don't know who Paul Newman is. Yeah, maybe not. But um, <laughs> they uh, eat cool salad, Luke. For those of you playing at home, at <laughs> home, it's like I was going to say they eat salad dressing. <laughs> yeah, interesting. It's a white. It's a white car too. We've talked about the. We've been, we've been predicting the white car with the 16 gigs of
3: uh, storage, right? So, there you yeah, go. this is definitely not going to be 49999
2: though. That's, that's pretty much <laughs> it. Oh, okay. how much was it? Uh, it was a mil, I think. Uh, let's see. Oh, they, they refer cool, Cool Hand look in here. How about that? That wasn't too far off. Yeah, $4.5 is what they... Cause I don't know what it actually sold for, but the article says that's what they were expecting. So, cool.
3: Yeah, I really wish... Like, I heavily desire having this in the form of, like, a Hot Wheel limited edition or yeah, something. Yeah, that would be cool, eh? We should right? do that. That's the closest I'd ever get to ever being vaguely near this car and the the design with the logo and everything and the so you know, the, 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 cheapest the thing about the Apple Store
2: at Christmas time was I was in there and, and I saw this uh, they have a new Hot Wheel track that you can actually um, I don't know if you all the toys these days have like an RFID chip in them or something like that and so I've got in my hand the Star Wars Darth Vader Hot Wheel and it's the same size as the Hot Wheels we used to get when we were kids but this one has a chip in the bottom and uh, still minted box by the way um, and it was ten bucks so Insta- buy right? $8.95, 10 bucks with tax. But um yeah, it'd be cool to see something like that as a hot wheel, right? Like a little uh what were you thinking? Yeah hot wheel right is what you said. Yeah the hot Park wheel size. Yeah that'd be cool. We should we should get into production on that until somebody sues us, right?
3: There's no such thing <laughs> as bad publicity Tim. That's what we <laughs> always say.
2: <laughs> well some companies don't need our publicity. That's my point, right? Anyway. All right so speaking of really old stuff, um, this goes back to the twenty seventh this is the twenty of January we record today. So it's so ten years plus two days ago, the iPad was first introduced by Mr. Steve Jobs at, I guess this would have been a Macworld. Um, why is this URL not opening? There we go. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the OG iPad was introduced 10 years ago um, for 549, 19 gigabyte iPad. So, how about that? And, you know, I hate to say, I mean, I've i said this many times before, I was telling people at work to do as well. I wouldn't be in the room doing iOS if it wasn't for the iPad. And I probably wouldn't be doing this show right now if it wasn't for the iPad. So Because I started out as an iPad developer how about you guys?
3: I was just going to interject and say, for those of you who are shaking your fist and said, five forty nine, what are you talking about? That's because he's talking about Canadian no, no, and no, American dollars. From, that I'm would be 4
2: It says original, the original 16 gig iPad was priced at... Oh, this is mobile syrup. So it's a Canadian site, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry,
4: it even says that. right next to the five forty nine dollars 49 CAD.
2: CAD. Yeah. yeah. CAD. Yeah. Or CDN. Yeah. All
3: right. I stand corrected. No, I mean, yeah. you, you were correct, just it was incomplete because a lot of people yeah. on the American I remember the the shock and awe of 499 when that's everybody true. thought yes, it was going to be a $1,000 machine.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah. Because I remember uh, even James uh, Thompson was saying on Twitter that he thought it would be a 1000 bucks or $4, 999 right? So there we go. Which is cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, life-changing device for a lot of us, as well as those, in the similar way that the phone was for a lot of people. So I know where one of my original iPads is it's in the hands of a friend of mine, and she's still using it to this day, running system iOS 6 on it. Um, I'm hoping it comes back to me at some point in the future. Because all the other iPads that I had and sold to friends and said, you know, if when you're ready to part with it, bring it back and I'll give you some money for it. They, they got rid of them. I have a tear in my eye over that. Anyway, yeah, OG iPad, 10 years ago today. Yeah, recall, the next article I have here is uh, this is a comeback story. Um, they're predicting, as we've I think we've talked about this before, that we're, they're predicting a new uh, iPhone SE2, uh, which might even be called the iPhone 9, they're guessing. Um, I would think same size format as, this is, yeah, we talked about this last week with Min Chi Kuo talking about that right in the after show last week. Um, yeah. So, uh, what do you guys have to say about that? Have you looked at the article at all or similar to like an iPhone 8 kind of capabilities?
3: Yeah. I'm really hoping that this will be similar to the original iPhone SE and that it'll be a hot rod of, of performance by having just way too much processor and GPU for what little screen real estate it actually has. Because those, you think those it'll have the
2: letterbox really... screen the same way this one does?
3: Yeah. I don't, I don't really know how I. How I feel about the, the Touch ID part hanging around. I, just, I kind of thought that that would be, um, you know, deprecated and removed at some point and, and just have the iPhone X style design language be sort of the baseline, like by now. What is it, three ish years later? I just assumed it'd be cheap enough of like, oh yeah, we can manufacture those, you know, at a, at a dirt cheap price and have that run through, but maybe it'll hang around. I don't know.
2: So this will be, you think it'll be the 320 by 568 um, size in terms of resolution? Oh, they're saying
4: it's same size. Of the iPhone 8, which is the larger device,
2: yeah, which people don't like the size, as I'm saying, like they want the smaller phones, right?
4: That's what they liked about the SE. Well, it was the size and the cost is what people liked about the SE. So, this one presumably will have a lower cost, but uh, yeah, but a larger screen. So, so they never made a non home button screen in this size, right? right, right. This was a you know, different, different form factor, so maybe they can reuse existing engineering and parts, so that's why they wouldn't. And, uh, put in the, the, the uh,
2: face ID. The face stuff. ID. Yeah. yeah. Well, the face ID. I think the the scanner and all that kind of stuff probably costs a bit chunk of change, right? Probably does. So, yeah. 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 Because it's got that infrared scanner, right, as well. Yeah. What do you call it? True depth the sensor. I think.
4: I think you're right there. Well, the,
3: is, yeah. At least for, for part of it, for sure.
4: Yeah. The iPhone 10 didn't have that though, right? That's why you. Uh, yeah. Did, it did. It? the face ID? Yeah. Oh,
2: okay. All right. all right. all right. That's the one with the notch, right?
4: It did have face ID, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just thinking. I'm remembering wrong.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, and I don't know if we're talking about the. IPhone, the next iPhone, the iPhone 12, in this um, 12 Pro, I guess it would be the uh, in this episode of the show today. But uh, rumors I've been hearing is that uh, that the through through the LCD Touch ID might come back. Right? We talked about that before. Um, do you think they'll stick with Face ID?
3: On on which on this particular
2: no, on costume? the next phone. I mean on the next iPhone 12. Oh, like we're, 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 sort of, we're Mark and I are sort of saying that we think that the Face ID technology would would kick the price up too high for people, right? Because they're looking for like a three
3: hundred fifty dollar phone, right, or three ninety
2: nine kind of thing
3: yeah but that was talking about the se land not oh, the 16 yeah like yeah, the next yeah, right right uh, i guess not top of the line but like the, the the normal iphone the normal iphone 12 would be you know my guess uh, face id based yeah
2: well i've been seeing renders of of like almost edge to edge type um screens right like maybe instead of a notch it would have like just a very thin strip across the top because i mean look at how the the ipad pros they, they have face id but they don't compromise the, the rectangle that's the screen right no so, i mean i don't know we'll have to see but yeah so SE, SE style phone coming back. Let's see what it is. I think I think making it as big as a um, an eight would be a mistake because I think people want that smaller size because the eight's almost the size of the ten, right? Isn't it? A little bit smaller, yeah. A little bit smaller, yeah.
4: Well, yeah. you know they have pretty good marketing research there. You know maybe it was more the price than the size that made the SE popular. So it's possible that a a low low price device with a bigger screen might actually do really well. Hard to say. Yeah,
2: that'll become uh, more important when we talk about uh, what of my picks. Anywho, um, I don't know why I put that in a pick, actually, to be honest with you. All right. Um, next story here is uh, that the iPhone. Uh, we, I, we're talking about this in a couple of places, I think, here. Yeah, we're talking about numbers in two places, so maybe we can consolidate these into one conversation. But um, so iPhone, Apple has hit 1.5 billion active devices, um, and nearly 80% of those are running uh, the most recent iOS 13. I don't know if you saw this article at all, but um, yeah, this, this came out of the the, uh, the uh, quarterly, what do you call it? Call it uh, earnings, Cook does earnings, earnings call.
4: Yep, yeah. do you listen to that, Mark? No, not, not lately. No, right. I used to listen to it all the time, but I don't lately,
2: yeah. So, yeah, and apparently they posted a record breaking fiscal quarter, first quarter of 2020, at 91.8 billion dollars. So, yeah, and the stock's uh, uh
4: doing pretty well. They're up to what is it, 324 today? Is it that high? Of course, not as not doing as well as Tesla stock these days. How's that doing? Uh, well, after so they closed at around five. Sixty today, but then after hours, after they had their earnings announcement today, they had kind of a blowout order. They, the stock in after hours trading, which we know doesn't really mean anything, but shot up seventy-five bucks in after hours trading. Wow!
2: Yeah. Wow! Huh. I didn't even know it was. Didn't even know that was a stock to watch. Oh, um, you yeah, haven't
4: been following Tesla? Yeah, Tesla's been. Tesla stock has been exploding lately. Really? Yeah. Huh. yeah. Wow. Who knows what? And why that
2: means? is that? Why is that? Just well, because last stuff.
4: two quarters. Welcome
2: to the Accidental Tech pod- Podcast, folks. Right. Sorry, go ahead.
4: Last two quarters, they've. Actually had pretty good profit, and yeah. last time they surprised a lot of people with the amount of profit they had.
2: Huh. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm, I've, I can tell you just from the from the number of Teslas I see in my neighborhood, uh, it seems to be growing. You know, two years ago it was one car, and last year it was two, and now now I'm seeing like you know three or four Teslas just on my on my like five minute walk to the streetcar in the morning. Right?
4: Yeah, they're all over so. the place here. I mean, every other car you see is a Tesla around here. Yeah, wow. yeah. but well, remember, just just because the company's doing well doesn't mean the stock deserves this extremely. High valuation. So be careful yeah, if you're yeah. an investor.
2: Yeah. Well, it could be, could be just uh, something to surf on for a short while. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Cause it'd be a shame if you got into it and then, and then it, it started to decline right away. Right. So,
4: well, yeah, one thing that does sometimes happen, and I have no idea if it's happening here, but mm. but investors, when a stock goes up and up and up and up, yeah. fear of missing out starts to kick in. So people will kind of jump in, right? And you know, retail investors, which means the guy, you know, the guy on the street, you know, who sees the stock going up and says, "Oh, I want in on that." They start buying, and that's when the big guys say, "Oh, okay, you know, uh, we've made our two hundred percent return. Time to sell." Mm. And they sell, and then the little guys get left holding the bag. It happens a lot, mm. so just be careful.
2: Interesting, yeah. So there's a couple of charts back on this article here it shows the iPad and OS and uh, iPhone usage um, iPhone is hovering, depends on if this device is introduced in the last four years, we're at 77% adoption of iOS 13 um, and for the iPad it's like almost 80% of uh, users are on um, on iOS 13, that would be the iPad OS right? Um, 57% of all iPad devices out there use iPad OS um, Wait,
3: so, so this those. is what I didn't like about this chart so it yeah. says for devices released with the last four years. Right, right. So that would be
2: the pros, right? The the iPad pros.
3: I didn't look at iPad, but I'm looking at the timeline for iPhone. And depending what you mean when you say four years, because we're kind of in a weird in between spot, kind of halfway in in between uh, the most recent iPhone and the next one that's coming up, um, that is either the iPhone 6S uh, from September of 2015 or the iPhone 7 of September of 2016, depending how literal you are with four years.
2: Yeah, I would think I would think iPhone 7 to, to the 10 series, right? Is what you're thinking because we had 7, 8 and then 10,
3: right? Yeah, and those are fairly recent devices like I know it sounds weird saying, you know, 4 years, but it's a it's a very weird twist on on that where you know, it's not unreasonable that folks might have a uh what does not support 13. The iPhone 6 and 6 Plus only goes up to iOS 12.
2: They have to 6S to to do 13, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, 6 is a minimum, which is What about the SE, the the SE looks like it supports iOS 13.
2: Right, yeah, I think it's the, the last of the small phones, right?
3: Yeah, so we'll still have to support that sort of stuff, and if you know, developer side, you still, I think, really should push for you know, handling safe area.
2: Yeah, I gotta tell like, you, having to support that little phone these days is is sometimes a pain in the butt when it comes to layout, right?
3: It does sort of feel like the, the basic layout almost always includes a scroll view at the very yeah. bottom, just because yeah. you know you're gonna have to scroll on something like an iPhone SE. Yeah, yeah we're challenged by that ourselves. All
2: right. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I rarely think about that in, in my own stuff because I try to use the safe area kind of stuff all the time. Um, but yeah, you, you'll get bugs and defects opened on on the smaller devices. Anywho, um, all right. So I guess you're up next, honey.
3: Yeah, this one's really short, but it is kind of an interesting sort of thing to think about in that uh, this is from Ole Begman, and he's got an article here about Swift UI and that uh, sheets, like the kind of, you know, sharing, uh, sorry, popover sort of sheets that you would... Pre- Present from a view, they don't automatically inherit the environment. For folks who may be familiar, we've talked about the environment as sort of like this, you know, magic God context thing that everything just sort of has access to. And you can pull down information, uh, you know, about sizes, about, you know, stuff that you might might throw in there to figure out, you know, how do I want to render? Um, And he shows a pretty good example here about how uh, normally when you have things sort of related to each other in SwiftUI, they do inherit like, you know, font modifiers uh inherit sort of the way you'd expect. But you don't get mm-hmm. that behavior with sheets that get presented sort of over the top modally. And and there's some little bit of discussion of like, well, maybe that sort of makes sense as a design decision. Like I, I could see arguing either way of like, well, I had this one root view, then mm-hmm. I presented this child view. Shouldn't the child inherit from the parent? That's a pretty good argument. I, I could agree with you on that. Uh, but on the other side is like, well, this child view is kind of its independent Context, so it kind of makes sense that it would be uh, not inheriting automatically. Um, and he does talk about ways to to get around this and insert of manually uh, sharing stuff like yeah. the environment.
4: There, there is some precedent to that. I mean, I can see both sides too. But there is some precedent to the not inheriting from UI kit where if you think about presenting a or, or pushing a a, a a view controller on the navigation stack versus presenting one modally, certain things are included in in the navigation stack, like you know a navigation. Bar and and uh, all of the you know, the the status you know preferred status bar and rotation stuff you know those all refer back to the navigation controller that's controlling the whole stack and everything that's inside there refers back to uses the. Uh, those those uh, properties from the navigation controller, but presenting something modally doesn't use any of that. So it's its mm-hmm. own kind of independent stack in some sense. So there's so there's some precedent, I would say. It's not completely out of nowhere.
3: Yeah, and, and I think it was one of those things of like, oh, you really have to think about this or be aware of it and don't be surprised, um, given the newness of SwiftUI, yeah. sort of new yeah. new ways of doing this stuff. Yeah. I think a lot of folks are very familiar with what you just described for the yep. navigation stack. Yep. But now we've got this, this new thing. It's like, oh, okay, all right, that's good to know that if, if you're ever ripping your hair out wondering why, why don't I have access to this dang environment the same way? What's right. going on? Well, this is what's happening.
4: Or maybe it's just a bug and it'll get fixed in the next version. <laughs> and,
3: and, and, and that is the admittedly dangerous and, and very caveated here on this very episode of, you know, don't take it as gospel until it's actually, you know, listed out somewhere. As like, yes, explicitly this is what happens. Are you saying your mileage will vary? Your kilometerage may vary, yes.
2: <laughs> All right. So take us down the road there, Jaime.
3: Yeah, on the road to Swift 6, it is is on the swift.org forums. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at this, but there's how many a uh, handful of items that they sort of point out of like what are they looking to do or Swift six like what mm-hmm. are the the main goals uh, number one here they talk about accelerating the growth of the Swift software ecosystem which I guess sort of makes sense so they're doing things to make it so that it's not just uh, I think as many detractors outside of the ecosystems AI it's this this niche language well, I mean, there's a there's a ton of Apple based developers, so careful what you call that a niche or niche language? Um, but I still think it's be good to to get that out there e- ecosystem wise. And I think hand in hand in that is part two about creating a fantastic development experience. Certainly, we've talked about on this very show that wow, iOS should be great when Swift builds just as nicely as Objective C does. Uh, that was very much true on on day one, and it's still mostly true with regards to build times and giving you reasonable information about what went wrong when the compiler barfs at you. Uh, I think even more so with SwiftUI thrown into the mix. Uh, number three here was one that worries me slightly. Um, this is called number three, invest sorry, invest in user-powering... Sorry, let me restate all of that. Yep. Number three, invest in user-empowering language directions. The idea that they want to have more capabilities to have uh, expressive and elegant APIs such as variadic generics... Uh, generics? and <laughs> Generics (laughs) and uh, domain-specific language capabilities, like function builders. I think on the one hand, that's fine. I definitely like the ability to have stuff that is uh, more powerful, more expressive. I do take a little bit of a critical eye, just given Swift's history, of not really giving in to the, um, the folks that are like the language wonks of like, wow, wouldn't it be really cool academically if this thing could be done? Sure. It'd be great. But will we actually use that? Or is that just sort of a scratching an itch to, to get something out there sort of thing? And since this is open source, you have an opportunity to to bend the language to your will. So I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye on, on this particular sort of uh, investment here. And I also think, uh, so they're talking about um, using a working group model that they use for the server domain stuff and applying it to other areas. So They've got a, a person who's going to be behind the port of Swift to Windows. So that's sort of in line with the idea of spreading outside of our, our normal little ecosystem. Okay. And somebody's still focusing on um, uh, on the the core team working on the server domain. So that'll be good. And they also mentioned on the path to Swift 6 that there will be more uh, 5.x releases prior to actually seeing Swift 6 itself come out. Um, a, a big part of what they're also looking to do is figure out where the um, the memory ownership model fits in with regards to the concurrency model that they're still figuring out for Swift. So I don't think there's any promises per se that that'll land in six, but it'd be nice to see that sooner than later.
2: And that post was from Ted Kremenich as well, leader of the Swift people, peoples of the Swift world. All right. Uh, This is a quick one. We were talking about stocks. I don't know if it's going to be in the after show or the pre-show or whatever. But uh, um, Jamf is uh, a manufacturer of um, mobile device management or enterprise device management tools for Mac. Um, And uh, they are, this is Jamf Software LLC. They're um, planning on having a filing for IPO soon. So keep an eye on if you're looking for something to invest in. They're um, probably leaders in MDM uh, in the world. I think it's pretty safe to say. Um, something like thirty five thousand customers are using Jam today, um, which is interesting. Cool. Thousand employees in ten countries. That's something to keep an eye on. And yeah, so we're talking about the we're talking about the quarter quarter. Have we talked covered this pre- pretty much? This is another article here I've posted about uh, delivering the best ever quarterly numbers powered by iPhone sales and services. Did you guys have a chance
4: to glance through this or not? This particular article, but I looked at the. Numbers and yeah, yeah, things continue to be moving in a very positive direction. Mm-hmm. For a, and we haven't even hit the 5G refresh yet.
3: Right. Yeah. And it also is definitely the case that we're we're going to see an interesting bump at some point, I guess, November, probably, mm-hmm. when we started seeing how does Apple TV Plus really work as a business oh, model, right? Because they're, they're getting like tons of subscribers. I think I saw some article that was talking about it having uh, more subscribers than Disney Plus, uh-huh. which honestly isn't that surprising. I mean, you're getting it for, for free. <laughs> for, for many, many of those people, uh, yeah. I'm not sure how many people are actually paying now, but certainly, you know, the rubber will hit the road when when the free year is up for everybody who who bought stuff this past fall and see yeah. how many of those are actually forking out their cash for this.
2: You don't think that they'll be uh, they'll be um, they'll offering some sort of free year going forward, like when you buy new equipment?
3: I don't think it'll be a year because that's a really long time. I, I really do believe that the year was a look. We we got like. Three three shows you can't Mm -hmm. charge five dollars a month for three shows Mm -hmm. right so give people a year give us time to build up a back catalog and then i think they'll do probably a month free trial three months at most and there's a really decent chance it'll be like a week free trial sort of thing right but that's what i think the business model will because it it is on the surface of it it is enormously generous to give an entire year for for that stuff and i think it's because they didn't have the catalog it's it's very different than like imagine if apple uh apple music launched with like ten songs you could listen to, right? Like they, they could, they'd have to give it away for free for a while until they actually had a decent catalog. They couldn't do it with that.
2: Well, the article here claims that the the services rose seventeen uh, percent to twelve point seven billion, driven by the launch of Apple Apple TV Plus and the new credit card, as well as you know iCloud and other subscription things that Apple's running, right? So
3: yeah, I, I do think it's contributing for sure because not everybody bought new new devices that that qualified, right. but I think you'll see a very large wave. Come November, of people um, signing up or, or not, or I guess not signing up, continuing to to be, yeah. you know, customers, actual paying customers at that point.
2: So, are you guys using Apple TV currently? You, you just got your new Mac, right, honey? I mean, you haven't opened it up
3: yet? Yeah, I haven't set it up, and and I actually <laughs> have an after show item to talk to you about it. All uh,
2: right. Mark, you're not using Apple TV? I'm not, no. no. Yeah, I'm just curious because I mean, like, you know, more uh, there's a couple of new shows have come out over the last little while that people are, are saying are pretty decent because, uh, you know, the, the, the initial shows that started out with the um morning show that the apollo one um and um the M. Night Shyamalan one have all finished. Like, you know, if you've, if you were, if you joined up early, you know, by now, you've already gone through all eight episodes of each one of those shows, right? Uh, so now you're sort of into the, and that's kind of like what's left, right? Um, but there are some new shows have just come out recently that, uh, people are raving about And one, like day in a life or something like that. I forget what they call it, but, uh, so it'd be interesting to see where this goes. And, and like you said, how it competes against the Netflix. And uh, we talked about on Spotcast that Netflix is still, um, growing, uh, in terms of subscribers in spite of the fact that, um, Disney and Apple Plus have stepped onto the uh, playing field. Alrighty, Well, it brings us to our picks. I've got a, a picorama here, but here, um, which we can go through. Um, this one is kind of interesting. It was an article. I, I read through it, and I didn't actually go through the, the exercise of trying any of the code out. But uh, this is a, an article about uh, speech synthesis and speech recognition. Um, and uh, talks about uh, the, the ways you can use, and I'll have a link in the show notes, of course, ways to use uh, the speech in um, AV Foundation, I believe, and waiting for the page to load up here. I just think I just up- upgraded my internet last week. <laughs> um, yeah, this is beyond the, the regular run-of-the-mill Hay Series stuff. But, yeah, it talks about using AV Foundation to to um, uh, have um, to deal with, with uh, what you say to, to, to your application and um, how it speaks back to you kind of thing. Um, you know, setting up the permissions to be able to use uh, recognition. Okay, of course, this is a um, disclosure statement you have to put in there for that as well. Um, and then, yeah. So some code samples here on how to uh, go through the various cases for using uh, the speech recognizer to be able to have people talk to your applications as well, right? And there's a, a little, little sort of tutorial here, which I, and I haven't, haven't gone through. I was reading it on the streetcar, but it um, seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, so if you're into uh, speech recognition, check out this, this article, which I'll have a link in the show notes, and it's called Speech Recognition and Speech Synthesis on iOS in Swift. Comment, nothing?
3: I haven't done the synthesis part, but I've done the recognition part mm-hmm. before, and this looks just eyeballing the code. This looks about what I did for that, just for a little toy project. Of oh hey, I can make a talking words. moose with this, right? <laughs> you <could. laughs> Yeah, you, you, you totally could.
2: So the next article here was, and I was the one I was talking about earlier that I wasn't sure if this should have just been a follow-up item, Um, but this is, uh, we've been talking about or I've been lamenting about the fact that, you know, we don't have things like, uh, what do you call the Apple payment program where you can buy a phone through Apple uh, with a monthly fee and rather than have to, you know, fork over the $1,500 Canadian to get a phone. Um, Rogers, as of uh, this month, as of like a a week ago, has decided that they're no longer going to be subsidizing phone plans um they had a program called edge where you could uh, you buy a phone and you paid like so much money and a percentage of that went into paying for the hardware so you would have to pay up you have to pay them like 450 dollars or whatever up front to get the new phone and then they would they would basically over the next two years charge you um a, a one price that would include the um the purchase of the phone as well as the the service you were paying for you're usually like a 10 gig service um but they've now done away with that so now the only option you have is this program they have called ultimate edge or i should check it actually um but the idea behind this one is that um you uh you basically pay them nothing up front uh, you have the phone contract for a couple of years and you pay uh for example like a 64 gig iphone 11 pro would cost you 58.96 per month uh, in financing uh always oh, the upfront edge is what they call the option um and that's a has a base of 75 dollar plan so you're going to be paying 133 134 dollars per month uh over the next two years roughly going to pay about $3,200 for um, the phone for the two years, and that's not including tax. You have to add your 13% GST or whatever you pay in your province across the country. Um, But if you do the math on that, it works out to be uh, $5 more than if the old plan. So just Rogers is just being, I guess, a bit more uh, transparent about what they're charging you for and giving you this option to to have a phone, like a new phone, without having to to hide and mask and make it really confusing. Because I can tell you that negotiating with... With these guys about uh, what phones you can get is, is always a challenge, but um, so you don't have to fork up money up front. I guess that's the, the bottom line of, this, of, of, of yeah. this. one.
4: So this is pretty much how we have it here in the U.S. Uh, yeah. We used to have programs like you described uh, when the iPhone first came out. For the first few years, you would pay something like a couple hundred bucks and you get a new phone, uh, but you'd have to sign a two-year contract and you'd be locked in. So they were making their money back that way, right? Yeah. But they did away with those several years ago. I don't I can't remember exactly when it happened. And now we have very similar. To what you just described, where you essentially get it for free and you have a monthly monthly plan that you pay
2: for, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I mean, the 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 math is that you know you're not really paying. Um, I mean, you you would pay less per month it would seem, but you would you would have forgotten about having to pay the four fifty up front, right? And uh, right. But if you if you add that, you know, the, you'd be paying like twenty seven hundred dollars, and you add the four fifty back in, you're you're paying still around thirty two hundred dollars. Don't do the math. I'm just averaging these numbers out. But the article does spell out what the numbers are. But uh, yeah, so you'd end up paying about the same amount of money over time to, to have the phone. Um, they came out with this ultra, um, upfront edge option around the time the iPhone uh, 11 and the 11 Pro came out. Um, I remember talking to the Apple, the people at the Apple store about it, and uh, it was sort of a, similar to the option that you have in the States, Mark, or the one you were, you, I don't know if you're still on anymore, but you were on before where you, you, you bought your phone from Apple and you paid so much per month, and then after the end of two years, you just went on to the next phone, right?
4: After one year, um, you could do that.
2: After one year, yeah, 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 okay. It's a similar idea here is that, you're, you're into this plan. And, uh, cause I mean, most people really, see, I, I don't know if everybody does this, but like when I could do it, I would tend to basically, you know, get a new phone every year, right? So, and it would like, so Carol and I each were offset by a year. So one of us gets the new phone kind of thing. Um, we just back and forth uh, over the years, but, um, so I guess every two years we refresh our phones, but uh, we always seem to have the, I currently don't have an iPhone 11 Pro and sort of kind of worrying about that. But yeah, so that's any new, new interesting uh, way that Rogers is doing it. And apparently the other competitors are coming. Uh, coming along with the same sort of plan, I'm sure Bell will follow suit shortly as well. Um, I had a couple of other things that I found on Twitter today. I'm going to talk about this one, and maybe I'll talk about the, the one that I didn't put in the show next week. Um, but uh, this is a quick little tip from: If you're doing any of the tutorials um, on uh, Swift UI, you will know about uh, Xcode previews, where when you when you build a, a Swift UI class, um, you've got that canvas view on the side, and you can look at the you can look at the preview of what you're doing, and if you're going to you know include that in into a, into another um, you, uh, Swift UI class, you would, you could preview just what the, like a table cell would look like, or like a, you know sort of a little um, region of a screen. You could build that in a, one class, and then you could you could preview it, and you could then include it into your into your main project. But what this um, tweet here points out is that you're not restricted just using uh, Swift UI to do this. Um, you can actually, as a screenshot here, you can actually use this, these Swift previews um, anywhere, like uh, um, in your in your code, whether it's SwiftUI UI or not, right? So, um, which is nice. So a nice feature of Xcode 11, be able to do that. So give that a shot. A little example here in, in code that the guys uh, provided. But yeah, it's a massive, it's a massive improvement on Apple's development systems, not just for uh, SwiftUI. UI. So that's cool. That's my third pick. And so Jaime, you have a pick for us?
3: I do. And it's a very quick one here. And it's not, uh, I don't think on the, on the surface of it, I don't think it's terribly exciting, but I, I read this from, uh, from Jesse Squires. And I thought, huh, that's something I've just sort of done naturally. For a very long time in Xcode, and I don't yeah. actually know if other people do it the same way. Maybe it's like a, a quirk of, of uh, I thought of myself, but apparently of other people. So this Xcode tip is to use breakpoints like as if they were bookmarks. So um, you know, setting a breakpoint on a line but uh, disabling it so it doesn't actually stop the code at that point is something that I've done for a very very long time, and I I realized when I thought about it that in a lot of cases it sort of ended up being a really good way for me to uh, informally track my progress in terms of understanding this code base that I'm joining, right? So I'm joining a new company, a totally different code base. And I realized like, yeah, I would leave breakpoints. Okay. Here's where I was tracing through. How does login work? How does it work to uh, upload a file? How does it work to you know render something to the screen? And I just littered everything with all of these different breakpoints that were effectively bookmarks where I would start clearing them off when I felt like, yeah, I kind of know how this part works. I don't need this set of breakpoints anymore. Uh, I, I really don't know where this is. If I ever have to fix a bug related to it, uh, I'm going to leave this one here as a bookmark so I can easily come back to it if a, a bug comes in from production. Do you, you guys do anything at all? Well, it's similar? interesting.
2: I just want to point out that there's probably like half of the audience is cringing at the fact that like like my like I know that my desktop of my Mac has a whole bunch of folders and uh, and files lying around on it, and I do have a tool to go through and organize them. But yeah, there's all those those all is clutter on the desktop if you ever looked at my any of my projects you'd find that I have probably a thousand breakpoints throughout my apps right um, and some of them might actually be active for all I know but um, yeah so I kind of sort of do this too but I, I do know there's like uh, one of the things that Derek Solander um, who's the you know the um, archetypal uh, debugger guy in Xcode um, he's got he's he's uh, one of his talks he talks about how to how to use a command to clear all your bookmarks um, on a frequent basis yeah so I think he's probably one of the purists who doesn't like to leave any bookmark or any breakpoints in his? Uh, did I say bookmarks? I meant breakpoints. Um, but yeah, it's, I read this article too, or this read, read this tweet too, and I thought it was interesting um, an interesting use of it. But yeah, because I think I do use it, but I don't think I necessarily use it to go and find things per se. But uh, I do know when I'm stepping through my code, I see where I've left the, left the breadcrumbs. Right? So I guess it's more breadcrumbs for me than, than bookmarks. What about you, Mark?
4: I don't really use it for that so much. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to, I, of course, as you know, too I, I use breakpoints really heavily for debugging, so I tend to have them all over the place as well. Uh, but I think my my problem is that I have so many around that have been disabled, you know, that so I can turn them on later. That yeah. that it probably wouldn't help because it's it's you know kind of too much of a good thing. It's I can't mm-hmm. find anything because I have I have them everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. So I can't say that I do that, but it's a, it's an interesting idea, you know, especially especially for when you're looking at a new code base. I mean, I like that. I like that idea i like that
2: concept yeah, yeah it's gonna open up one of my one of my biggest projects that i have on the go this is i'm curious to see how many breakpoints i have in it i know it's a lot
3: but- while you do that i think if there are enough people who do this sort of thing it makes me think that this speaks to the idea of it might be nice to have a feature that actually does yeah. properly yeah. do bookmarks yeah. right and even better if it's hooked up into being able to understand um, versions of code you know, through through git integration so it would be sort of like a stable thing of like where did this thing move to where did this line of code uh, move to over time? Because I have had that problem where, oh, dang it, I switched to a branch that is completely different and all of my little bookmarks here will not work.
4: And maybe even having a notes feature so you don't have to go and put comments into the actual code. If you're, When you're, say, you're learning a new a new code base, sometimes you want to make a note of something um, so you remember for next time. Uh, now you could do that just by adding a comment, but then you've actually changed the code base. So if you had a, a notes feature where you could have like a sticky note or something, Something or a, or something like they do with the uh, collaboration tools, where you have a little popover that you can type in. That might be kind of a useful thing.
3: Yeah, like annotations that people have on eBooks. Right, right. Yeah, that that, that totally makes sense because I have done something vaguely similar, but my 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 poor man's way of doing it uh, again, very similar to the the breakpoint things. says, oh, here is this interesting thing I found. Um, I don't want to comment the actual code in the repository because now everybody else has to deal with the. Right. Right. the mess. I have made comments in the code and stashed that away um, either in a Git stash or in a Git branch mm-hmm. that I can actually just look at, you know, cause it's, it's actual code there, but I'm the only one who, who sees that sort of a poor man's way of like, where the heck does this thing come from? All right, let me leave a little, you know, a little, yeah,
4: here's an interesting idea. Trails here. what if, what if you had everyone who was on your development team, who's working on the same code base, you could, you could pop open one of these little collaboration bubbles like you have in, you know, Google office or whatever, uh, and ask someone a question about that line of code. And then it shows up on, maybe it doesn't just, you know, in a spammy way pop up, but it, you know, it becomes visible that someone's pointing something out in the code base. So it doesn't actually go into the repo. So it's not part of the code. It's just part of the IDE and and the IDEs are all linked with your coworkers. So you could have sort of real time comments popping up in your code. That'd be kind of interesting, huh? You understand? Does, does it what make sense what I'm describing?
3: Yeah. Yeah. If you... If you layer Google Docs on top of that experience on top, on top of Xcode, of what Xcode could yeah. do, that yeah. would be a really, really sweet yeah. thing.
4: Now, I guess it might. It would be sort of hard if people are working on different branches and they're editing the same files. Then you're. And how does it know where to put the thing and stuff like that? So there's there's some complications to it. Uh, but uh, but it was. I think it still could be kind of an interesting thing. Well, Xcode Xcode 12 maybe I'll have that.
2: So I guess that's it for another week. So hey, Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that?
3: I'm on Twitter is at DevWithaHair. Alright, Mark, if people want to get in touch with you. Markr at smatsoft.com. Alright, and as I said before, my
2: name is Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A. On the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. So until next time, we'll talk to you later. Bye.
1: Bye. 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 This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is Mike Van Ogmans, MTJC's favorite voiceover artist for some reason. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast... Tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.
3: So Tim, I imagine, or, or Mark, whoever, I, I imagine both of you guys have migrated from one machine to another many multiples of times. Many, probably many times, could. yes. Good, good experience here. So I haven't done this in a very long time, uh, like actually uh-huh. trying to migrate from one pretty good setup to what I want to be the same setup. What are the best resources to, to follow along to do that? So right now I have um, my current machine is, uh, I did a time machine backup of that, and so I've got an external drive that. Has a copy of that. I've got um, the machine updated to Catalina finally because I know that the new one is going to be on Catalina. So now I want to have basically this setup I have here as seamless as possible moved over to the new MacBook Pro. What what's the best way to, to go about doing that? The last, the last pa- time last I did time this, I did it, it, it was like connect a cable from one to yeah, yeah. another.
4: <laughs> That's what I was going <laughs> to yeah. say. You collect a crossover Ethernet cable and run the tool that Apple provided to do that.
3: Yeah, or get a
2: get a um, like a, a Thunderbolt cable. Like what kind you have? A Old, you have an older Mac, right? Like,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, because the last time I did that, it, it was like twenty fourteen ish. moving yeah. from one MacBook Pro to another uh, at work, yeah. and I completely screwed up. Like, I tried doing the Mac Migration Assistant or whatever it's called, and it, it, it was strange to me because, like, oh, did did this copy over like my? My um, super user as a different user no. than than what I had on that machine, and, and granted, I didn't. It was a, a a work provided machine, so I didn't have it from from, from the get go. Yeah, yeah. The get-go, So I don't know if yeah. they set up something on there before. Well,
2: so the bottom the thing about it is, is underneath the the hood, there's a user called five hundred one, which is the first administrator account you set up on there, and then you. So any other one, it's like five hundred two, five hundred three, five hundred four, whatever. So if you weren't the first um, user on there, it, the user ID doesn't really matter that much, but I can tell you what I do um, when I move from machine to machine, and this might work for you in this case, is I always use the migration assistant. Um, and then, then I just have to worry about a few little things that don't get migrated over, like stuff that I might have in, that I put in my library folder directly, like the system library, right? Websites and databases and stuff like that. But um, So yeah, I, I do that. But what I tend to do is I tend to go buy a, a, like a one terabyte drive or whatever size you need. Um, and I use Carbon Copy Cloner to clone a copy to that drive and then i can take that drive and and do the migration assistant from that drive like it, it doesn't have to be from a physical mac it can be from a volume that has a, a operating system on it and don't set up any accounts before you do this right just do it straight and it'll 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 import all the accounts that you've set up there already and then it'll set up all your applications all your preferences all your mail will be all automatically hooked up and all that kind of stuff all that sort of you know the sort of nuances you have to do get everything hooked up they'll they'll just get migrated over it very rarely Screws up, but if you use a, if you use the idea that I'm talking about with the, with the external drive, and, and so you have like a pristine backup of your system, like a clone of it, right? Um, you can if it doesn't work out or it fails for whatever reason, you can wipe the machine, the new machine again, and then try it again, right? So you're not really married to it, right? Um, there are other people, other schools of thought who say they like to start with a clean machine and just create a new account and migrate things over like from, download it from iCloud or wherever but, um, or from Time Machine Time Machine's going to take you 14 hours I can tell you right now.
3: Yeah, I let that sucker run overnight.
2: Yeah, it's still, and then it, and halfway through it fails and you have another 14 hours to wait, right? So that's what the Carbon Copy Cloner will, it'll take you probably maybe 45 minutes to an hour to, to, clone, the, to clone your first Mac and then it'll take you about that long to, to use the migration assistant to get it back, right? So you can also, okay. if, you, if you're oh. really brave, you can use Carbon, Carbon Copy Cloner to clone over the the new OS too. But um, yeah, I would I would probably use the Migration Assistant. That's because you're going from different hardware to this new one. So what you know what basically what Apple's done is they've put a system into your into the new machine that's suited for that machine, right? And the Migration Assistant will kind of only bring over stuff that's um, different, like not it won't bring over applications and library stuff that that won't work on the machine. But it'll bring your account over. Your your home directory is the most important most important piece of that's where all your preferences and everything are right and it'll move it'll move your applications over that you have installed the ones that will work on the new OS and new new hardware right that's probably what i would do do a do a clone rather you can i mean the simplest thing is to hook them up like with a firewire cable like you can get a you can get like a Thunderbolt to uh USB adapter from Apple and then um so you could use like a Thunderbolt transfer cable to go from the old machine to the new one. It looks like you know it's got the display port style um port on, uh, plug on it, right? And um mm-hmm.
3: I have one here if you could but you're it's a mile away from you. Um yeah or <laughs> three the, the, weeks and, and twenty dollars later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shipping it over to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean I
2: always I always buy those cables and just leave them around because I mean I'm constantly like messing with other Macs and migrating things and you you know, wiping stuff, but the, the clone thing, um, what I do with the carbon copy clone thing is is every, like, you know, fortnight or whatever, I'll go in and just clone my machine so I've got a backup, and sometimes when I'm traveling to the States, you know, I'll carry the, the clone drive with me just in case, you know, I pour, a, you know, a, a mojito on my Mac and, you know, I have to go to the Apple store and buy a new one, at least I've got a relatively good clone to backup from or restore from, so, yeah, so every now and then, I'll, I mean, I use Time Machine all the time, but that's sort of like, I use that for files. Like you know, for file level backup, I don't really. It's there for disaster, but yeah, if you ever have to restore from it, it's gonna. It's a world of hurt to wait for it, right? But uh, so I find the Carbon Copy Cloner is a much uh, much faster way to do it. Because I mean, then you can you can buy like a, a drive that has a you know a USB thing on it, so you can connect. Uh, you can probably find one that like a, an enclosure that that will have USB C as well as USB on it, so you'll you won't have trouble connecting to your old Mac and your new Mac, you know. And then mm-hmm. you've got an interface you can use going forward.
3: Yeah, I've actually uh, the I think it's like a small 1.5 terabyte Samsung uh, USB drive that I got to do the Time Machine backup. Oh
2: yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: As uh, it comes with two cables, it comes with a USB A and a USB C cable.
2: Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So you can look at the amount of space you, free space you have on there because I don't know how much space your Time Machine used up, but because um, you can probably create a clone of your exist your 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 2013 Mac, um, you probably have enough space to make an image of that. Like was it a 500? 112 gig drive or something like that.
3: I think so, and it wasn't even totally full either.
2: Yeah, so you'll like you you can make a like basically what it does it makes a disk image of of uh, the drive, right? Um, yeah, so you'll just say you know you'll, the target will be like a new clone image, and um, and then when you go to when you go to uh, when you fire up the other Mac and it asks you if you want to migrate your data over from another machine, plug in the USB drive and then point it to the the hard drive image, and it'll mount it as a, as if it's a hard drive.
3: Right. So if I understand the process. Carbon copy, carbon copy cloner of the old Mac yeah. on a, an external drive. So if yeah. anything bad happens, I've at least got that. Yeah. And I mean, plus you have the old Mac too, still, right? Right, right. And then fire up the new Mac. Yeah. Um, use the migration Install assistant. Carbon, and say, uh,
2: yeah. Use the migration assistant. Yeah. Say, Yo, the this,
3: use, use this drive yeah. uh, or this volume, I guess, on the drive. It's going to make
2: yeah. a DMG of it, right? Of your old drive or your old drive. So you, you point, you point the, you can, yeah, you can, you can, you can mount the, the new drive on, uh, sorry, you mount the carbon copy. Clone drive onto your desktop and then point to that as the source for, for migration. Right, I I I'm, I'm, I might start with a clean drive, like or maybe make a partition on that other drive on the Time Machine drive. You can always blow the partition away later, right? Because with APFS and all the new modern file systems, you can make and you can create partitions and get rid of them without having to reformat the entire thing. Mm-hmm,
3: right. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, might, I you, might create a, or a partition on there.
2: Yeah, and you only have to make it as big as 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 the old drive was, right? Because the other alternatives is yeah, put put the drive in target mode, like put the old Mac. Can target mode. That's another way to do it, right? But then you need to have a the Thunderbolt adapter that's going to set you back like $30, 40 bucks, right? And then how often you're going to use it? Unless you have you have any like um like do you have DisplayPort monitor or anything
3: like that? Or the monitor is DisplayPort. That's
2: true. So I so I'm going to when I when I get my my next Mac it's going to be USB-C, obviously, right? So I'll buy a Thunderbolt two to Thunderbolt three adapter from Apple, and it's basically it's a DisplayPort on one end the the male end is a display port and the female on on the back of the thing is USB-C, right? And then then I'll use a USB data transfer cable. By the way, yeah. So the cable that comes with your new Mac is not a data transfer cable; it's a power cable. So you'll need to you, you would if you didn't have a USB-C cable, you'd have to go buy one. But I think it sounds like you've got one with your your, your drive, your Samsung drive, right?
3: Yeah, it, it came with two. I had to look. I was like, "What's the difference?" Like, oh, it's USB-C. Sorry, USB. Yes, I think USB-C on the side that goes into the drive mm-hmm. uh, on on both of them, and the ones that comes out of the drive are either USB A or USB C.
2: Does it have that funny looking um, flat uh, jack on it? Um, right. I'll, I'll have to it.
3: dig to dig it up. I I had tossed it into the closet after I made the time yeah, machine most of the, new,
2: most of the new uh, USB drives have like a doesn't look like it, the kind that goes into the side that goes into the Mac at all. it Looks like a like sort of a wide, it almost looks like an HDMI with a notch in it, right?
3: Yeah, because uh, that's
2: it, power and and data.
3: It, it was amazing to me how tiny these these yeah. drives are. I, I bought a yeah. drive. I thought. Not that long ago, that's about the same size, and this is like a almost like a matchbook in size. Like I think yeah. it, you would put it in a in a breast pocket in your your shirt, like yeah, and have room to put more stuff in there.
2: You mean it's not a two and a quarter inch drive? Like
3: I don't. even, I, I'm vaguely remembering the size. It felt like a matchbook. So when I um, fried
2: my when I fried my um, my uh, drive last year, I went ran over to to Best Buy and I bought like an empty case, a USB a USB case, and I bought a five hundred twelve gig um, SSD drive, right? And all in, it was like ninety nine bucks. I was amazed, like because I remember buying like a five twelve k drive for seven hundred bucks or something back, you know, back in the day, right? Like the drive that runs off Carol's. Carol has an iMac upstairs, and we don't run it off of the internal drive because it's a it's a mechanical drive and it's painful. Mm-hmm. So we use that seven hundred dollar SSD drive. It's a four hundred and eighty gig, then, I think about it. We use that as the main drive for that. It's externals on the back. It's bolted onto the back of the iMac,
3: right? Yeah, I, I also have. Uh, maybe I should try. Dig- this up, I have a. I think it's a terabyte. I want to say it was called my book or some other. Yeah, from thing. Western
2: Digital. I think
3: it's a Western Digital. It is enormous. It is like yeah. a physical book, like a hardcover yeah. volume in size, and it has its own separate power supply. That you, <laughs> like, you have a transfer yeah. cable. It's like a USB yeah. cable, but then it also has a power brick that needs to be plugged into the wall. Yeah, and then to put it up against this little thing that's like like a box of matches. Yeah, in size, I have a bunch
2: of CD drive around that I use for for off-site storage, yeah.
3: It makes me think of uh, altered carbon. Like the size of this drive is kind of like the size of the stack that they have yeah. in their, their the base of their spine. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, we're kind of not that far away from altered carbon land if we can figure out the, the integration between the computer and the human. Yeah. The the size of the technology is already there.
2: I think, I think that um, um, Arthur Clarke, he calculated that a human being can be stored in a petabyte of data. So, yeah, the oldest file I have on here is a Joining the Cult by Adam Sandler and it was from 2008 on this machine. It used to be the oldest file. but I think the one at Carol's machine upstairs has, like, even older files than that. Yeah. gotta got to keep them all. Got to keep all the Pokemons, right? And, of course, <laughs> I've restored files from my old uh, floppy disks and stuff like that as well. got some really old puppies on there. And I, got, I, got, I, of course, got my Drobo network drive as well. He was on that guy. That's where I keep my music. Except now that I'm on iCloud, everything seems to be on the iCloud, right? You, yeah, you, you that's, use, that's true. Do you use Apple Music, Mark? Like, Yeah, uh, I do, all will yeah. yeah, so I've got some... Uh, uh, files here that go back to 95. Let's see how far back can I go? I found, I, I, just cu- I didn't realize I put the CD that I had on my... Oh, 91. back to 91 here. I have a font... Remember font DA mover, Mark? Yeah. Oh, we have some 68 yeah, case. I've got font DA mover. Of course, it won't run on <laughs> current systems at all. Yeah, That's the thing, I because fonts used font. to
4: be in that special yeah, package, they were controlled
2: right? C devs, right? D devs? Yeah. SCSI probe. Remember SCSI probe?
4: Yeah, you haven't had a SCSI drive in a long time.
2: <laughs> no, I've got... Yeah, I actually just... Uh, I just re- resurrected some the other day. Right, I mean, remember yeah, Mode Thirty Two? The first piece of uh, shareware I ever bought was Mode Thirty Two. You remember that? No. What was that? Oh, maybe that's not the one I'm thinking of. Uh, this one goes back to '92. This is this was a uh, added 32-bit um, capabilities to your Mac. Oh. And the first one I had was a F. It, it was an FPU. Like, remember the floating point unit? They, they didn't. A couple of Macs didn't have floating point units. Mm-hmm. In them. Yeah. So that was the first piece of shareware I ever bought from a guy. And I ran into him like at a MacWorld in Boston. Right. And I'm like, Oh, hey, I bought your software. And He's like, Oh. Thanks for buying my software. <laughs> I think a lot of people just downloaded it, right? Mm-hmm. I call soft FPU. I think it was called. If I
3: have it on? YouTube. It's really taking me back there. I think the <laughs> first share where I ever paid for was WinZip. I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. Obviously, that's on Windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that one. I used to have
2: that too. I have a thing called Access PC, which let me read files off of uh, Windows disks. Oh, I got some system folder stuff here. Control panels to say, Remember, remember, Extension Manager, Mark?
4: I sure do. Yeah. yeah. That
2: was the best thing since sliced bread.
4: Because half the time your app, your Mac wouldn't boot up because of some stupid extension. Yeah. Oh, it would crash all the time some third-party picture.
2: Yeah, and then we had the constro- control strip.
4: Yep, yep. That, that was the was dock fun. in the early days. Yeah.
2: 91. How many years ago is that? A long time ago, right? 30, 30 years? Almost 30 years? Long, long time ago, I mean. Oh, look, I got some time machine backups on this drive, too. Oh, here's a folder called Floppies. What's in there? Ooh, floppy disks. I have some 400K images. Wow, those are old. Imagine how many files you get on a 400K floppy, I mean. Single, <laughs> single-sided.
3: Yeah, man. Oh, <laughs> well,
2: there's my desktop. I have a copy of Photoshop 1.0 disk image. That's what I put on my um, my iPad, right? That emulator that I run? Good old software. And I mean, emphasis is on the old... Oh, there's my Topps Mac image I was talking about earlier for networking. Yeah, I think what I forgot to mention in the in that early Mac office thing is that System 7 was the first operating system that had peer-to-peer
3: networking from Apple. I'm
2: going to have the backups of the More Than Just Code here all the way back to episode number one. So how about that uh, coronavirus
3: that is causing beer? chaos? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I heard that today that there's like um, 14,000 people infected in China with that. Yeah, if you're going to catch a virus from a SARS. beer,
4: it should at least be a good beer, you know? <laughs>
2: You can get it from a beer? Corona. Corona. <laughs> Sorry. Bad joke.
3: Well, it's because
4: they didn't use the lime
2: to yeah, fill it. That, right? yeah. <clears throat> Corona. He's such a jokester, that Mark guy. Yeah, I shipped up something out from eBay yesterday, they've got this new. Um Shippo what's called, um, it ties into your eBay eBay account with Canada Post, so it automatically prints out the label and t- you get a discount and ties to your like to the sale on eBay, and you, have, you don't have to do anything. Like it automatically puts all the information in, which is nice.
4: Do you use eBay a lot?
2: No, I, I just happened. I had a uh, Bruce Coburn book that I Carol Carol put all my music books in storage, and so and it's like hard to get to, and I don't know where it is, and I, I mean I know where it is, but I don't know where she's put everything. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to play some stuff, and you know. Of course She's put all my tablature away, and, and it's not available online because he's a kind of obscure artist, right? And
4: uh, oh, have you tried Songster?
2: No, but uh, I've gone to the Ultimate Guitar tabs and all that kind of stuff, right? Anyway, Songster
4: so, tends to be better.
2: Well, so but I, but I had the book. I mean, she gave yeah. me the book back in like in the early '90s, right? And and but anyway, so I, I scoured the internet and finally found a copy on eBay from Texas. So I bought it, and it came to me. It was like it had never been opened, kind of thing. It was like I mean, old and faded, like it was like clearly like a thirty-year-old book. But um, so I so I basically scanned it with my with my scanner and turned them into P.E.S., and then I put it back on eBay to sell it. Right, Mm -hmm. so. And somebody bought it in Vancouver. So, I, I mean,
4: I sell things occasionally. Songster has, if I had a rocket launcher, Box yeah. Glove, of yeah. to the World, Sunwheel yeah. Dance, Lord of the yeah. Starfield, Silver Wheels, All the Diamonds in the World, Cater Idris, Wondering Where the Lions Are, If a Tree Falls, The Coldest Night of the Year, The Charity... But are they, done
2: in, are they done in, like, somebody's typed them out in Tablature, or are they, like, scans of sheet music?
4: No, it's amazing. <clears throat> go to songster.com right now and check it out. You'll be amazed.
2: Well, I'll do a podcast first, and then I'll go back and check out Songster.
4: <laughs> Um, it's got everything in tab. You can, yeah. it, it will play the song. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, have, I, stumbled mm-hmm. across
2: that. I, I usually just do a search and then search for something tab and then, all right. Yeah. Songster okay.
4: is available on the iPad too, which is, it's a pretty amazing free app. on the iPad. It was when I bought it or downloaded yeah. it. I think, well, maybe it wasn't free. Two hours. Songs, but I paid songs for from it. Two hours. Two hours. Yeah.
2: All right. Yeah. I think I've been over here before. Let's see. Coburn. Anyway, this has all, all this, the the thing I'm talking about, it has all this early stuff. Mm. Yeah. So they got but, like, they got like some of these songs are, in or in the um i have two books by coburn right and the first one is better it's written by like a real fan kind of thing and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah well, this is one yeah yeah you can listen to it, it'll play oh i can learn how to play stairway to heaven finally
4: there you go just you're just never allowed to go in, into a guitar store you're never allowed to
2: play it in public i know yeah right. yeah yeah. that and uh enter sandman and uh smoke on the water
4: classical gas you know they play classical gas well maybe these and, days you are because it's less it's more obscure now <laughs>
2: Yeah. Hmm. yeah, but that's an acoustic piece right Yeah,
4: it is yeah, yeah. kind of a classical ish
2: yeah, I just remember when I was younger my cousin I always wanted to play guitar my, my parents would never buy me guitar and then my cousin from India sent a tape over him of him playing the song like like a, like a master and I'm like what how come he gets to do it and you know anyway.
4: so I was talking to one of our uh our young engineers from Toronto today oh yeah
2: Toronto. and uh by the way I just want to po- point in interject here that Siri says Toronto correctly
4: how do you say Toronto
2: well it's it's not Toronto it's Toronto. Toronto. We kind of we kind of roll over the last T, right? Oh, okay. Like Rono, Toronto. Toronto. You know? so she actually says Toronto, like like, Toronto. like we do. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. All sorry. Right.
4: So anyway, so I was explaining about uh, the Rush song Y Y Z and how it's based on the airport, but it's the airport code in Morse code.
2: Yeah, it's in Morse code. Yeah.
4: Right. So they thought that was interesting, but had never heard of Rush, which disappointed me. What? They're Canadian. Yeah. So I said, "Wow." I mean, I'm
2: calling. I'm calling the Canadian consul right now. Yeah. Those exactly. Yeah. Canada.
4: So then. I I said, "Hmm, have you ever heard of uh this other uh big band that was big in Canada uh tragically hit?" <laughs> really? Nope, never heard of it. Hey, how old are these people? 23, 24, just turned 24 this this Oh,
2: they've probably heard of Justin Bieber and and uh... Then
4: I then I asked, "You ever heard of Neil Young?" And you said, oh, "Uh that God. that sounds familiar." Yeah. Joni Mitchell? No, never heard of her. Wow. Yeah. The guess who they probably never heard of. Oh, I guarantee you they've never heard of the guess who. <laughs> that that one's way more her, uh... that one's
2: way more obscure than the other ones. Mentioned. Or Steppenwolf, <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: Or Lighthouse, yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know Lighthouse.
4: Lighthouse. what's Lighthouse?
2: You don't know Lighthouse? Oh. No. They were, they were the thing about Lighthouse. They had uh, there was I don't know. There was like a Pepsi Coke bottle cap collecting thing where you had to collect all the people from each band. Mm. And I just remember Lighthouse had like eleven people in it. Uh-huh. And it was like it was like the one to collect because it had all the all the people in it. Anyway, it's, uh, they they. I mean, I'm probably going to get yelled at for saying this, but I think they were like a one hit wonder. They had uh, this okay. one song, yeah. one song called "One Bright Morning." Mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting to riff. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of Canadian bands. Um, like a lot of stuff from Redbone was like a, a indigenous band. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just I think uh, Carly Rae Jessup. Is that uh, ring a bell with you
4: guys? Yeah, I know the name. Call me yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, they probably know her. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: And,
4: and Drake, uh, of course, they know Drake.
2: Drake, yeah, yeah. Drake, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Drake. I remember him when he was on Degrassi Junior High. <laughs> I don't
4: even know that. Was that a TV show? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah it was uh, a Degrassi, Degrassi Street was a sort of a. Um, um, public television kind of thing that started you know way back when, and then they did Ju- Jurassic Junior High. Mm. It was on for many many years. Um,
4: so Jaime's been a little quiet over there. I'm wondering if he's ever heard of any of these bands that we've <laughs>
3: yeah. been I, I, was, I didn't do one by one. Uh, Joni Mitchell didn't ring a bell. All the other ones did, oh. even if I couldn't necessarily say, "Oh yeah, here's a you know headlining song that I know." Yeah. Uh, but at least you know, name wise familiar with most of what you well, guys you've heard doing. of Nickelback. Oh yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently they're coming out on tour uh, you get an emails from uh, Live Nation, which is one of our Ticketmaster affiliates up here. Mm-hmm. I think it is Ticketmaster, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, that's, that's funny. Look, there's are no way to heaven again. Okay.
4: Um, you actually not know how to play it?
2: I've played, I, I don't know the actual, I don't know the actual finger picking, but I, I kind of know the chord progression. Cause occasionally, like, you know, somebody will break into it in the middle of a damn session. But we, we've we never actually played it in our, like, I played in a, like, with a bunch of guys for like 15 years. Yeah. And we would play, we would play, we would play some pretty obscure stuff and, you know, a lot of Pink Floyd and Beatles and Stones and stuff like that. Uh, but we never, uh, we do a lot of that, a lot of Zapplin, like, you know, um, Ramble On and, uh, Rock and Roll. Uh, like, we used to do, we used to do, uh, Johnny Be Good and then roll into, into, um, rock and roll cuz mm-hmm. it's the same song mm-hmm. um and don't tell the lawyers that because somebody'll get sued um and then well, um, led
4: zeppelin stole everything else they did so yeah, yeah. That's what
2: i mean led zeppelin's had a hard enough time with the lawyers as it is yeah. you know they're you know they're running don't money don't send
4: us nasty letters we like led zeppelin yes. but we just we, acknowledge, we just acknowledge that they did steal a lot of stuff
2: <laughs> <laughs> well they were they were doing blues i mean so was so the stones right the stones did a lot of blues stuff in the early days they didn't they didn't write all their original stuff yeah so. not, um, not all the blues
4: stuff black Side yeah, I think you was, talked about that one yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or wait, was that the that's the uh, that was the version that got stolen? What was what was the Zeppelin version called? Black? No, uh, oh, Black, Black Mountain. Mountain side. Some Black
2: jam Black, or, or something like that. Black, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Bob. And apparently they stole Spirit to Heaven too from uh, another band. Anyway, that they toured with.
4: Oh, from um, yeah. What was the name of that band?
2: Uh, it doesn't matter. Spirit.
4: It really doesn't matter.
3: Doesn't matter, Jaime. Mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you are want to be factually accurate about so these so, statements. let me tell
2: you my story. Let me tell you my. story Story about music production. So, and part of the reason why we do this podcast is because one of my electives in university I had to do an elective in fine arts, but outside of my discipline, which was visual arts. And so, I took a course on music, and it was called experiment- It was experimental music, like because so it was like Stockhausen and you know synthesizer stuff, and we played with tape loops and all kind of stuff, right? And I remember I did a piece once that the teacher really. Liked. I didn't know anything about music at the time. Like I had no music theory, whatever. So he kind of just cringed at the fact that it was in his class. But um, but it was a lot of studio technique we learned about tapes and, you know, synthesizers and stuff like that. And, um, so one of the things I did was I set up a tape loop, and I took a sample off of Tales of Topographic Oceans, which I always thought was Bill Brufer, but it turns out it was actually Alan White. But anyway, so I took this, this sort of drum piece from, like, Side 3, really obscure thing, and I, and I basically looped it and layered it and whatever, made it sound really sort of, like, you know, interesting, but the original sample was from the actual album. And I remember, this is like 1982, 83, maybe? And the teacher... Just went off like like went off because went, like like they actually showed they like, they played my piece in, in a on, in a recital and the whole bit he was really happy with it and then we were talking about how we made it I said well I started out with this little sample right mm-hmm. and uh, which wasn't we didn't call them samples back then right and he just like blew up and like the whole class was like oh my god I can't believe you did that and then like three years later sampling becomes a thing you know you could have been rich well not not that I invented sampling <laughs> there but I but my point is like like you know. It was. It became a legitimate, you know, way of, of, you know, building other songs using somebody else's sample, right? So, mm-hmm. oh, well, I just picked the wrong track. I was supposed to pick the tr- the, the drum sample from the the it was his name James Brown track, the one that everybody uses in all the hip hop songs, but nah, wasn't anything like that. Mm. Somewhere around here, I have a half inch tape with it on it. Anywho, um that's my story. I'm sticking to it. All right. Well, I got to go uh, rescue a build and send it in. I forgot to check it at six o'clock. See if it was finished on the build server. All right. And yeah, we're we're getting okay. close to release. Good luck. One more rounder okay. regression testing and that's it but all the bugs squished all the ones we could find anyway all righty we'll talk to you later all right bye. Talk to you later bye. bye selling a little or a lot